Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter, and along with me is Jonathan always Pritchett. riding alongside shotgun is Jonathan Pritchett. I won't say that he's the Robin to my Batman, the short round to my Henry Jones Jr., but he is here with me today, and as well, we have Dr. Layton Flowers. Dr. Flowers, welcome to the show. Hey, my honor to be here, guys. Always like hanging out, talking with Jonathan and Braxton about theology and life. It's always fun. Yeah. And we, we've got your favorite subject today, Calvinism. And I picked this. He rarely talks about it. Yeah, rarely. Um, well, I mean, on, on this channel, he's 50-50 for Calvinism and other stuff. We're going to talk about Calvinism, but not really theology, because we're interested in culture, broader evangelical culture, and Calvinism for the last 25 25- Hold on, hold on. First, let me say, because I can tell that you're really doing like a, a really well formal thought out. I was, and then you... Okay, but yeah. I want to ruin that. Yeah. And I want to, before you, you're going to get to do it again. So that was like a dress rehearsal. And I want to say, it. let us know how our mics sound. Now, don't get nitty about it. But if it's actually uncomfortable, like if it's a big division, like difference, then let me know. Uh, Pritchett, I think you were going to uh, kind of give a preamble here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I would say for the last 25 years or so, Calvinism has had uh, an impact for um, good and bad uh, in the broader evangelical culture, here, at least here in the United States, and I'm sure abroad. And I wanted to talk about both the good and the bad. And I know that uh, even though nobody believes this, nobody believes that Leighton and I used to be Calvinists. If you're a Calvinist, you don't believe that, which is fine. Uh, I I don't care. Um, But as far as my background goes, I um, grew up Methodist and then um, that became intolerably liberal because they they swap these pastors around every seven to 10 years or so. And we happened to get uh, a crazy one. This was even back in the 80s. So the Methodists, what you're seeing them imploding um, goes a long way back. But so we went to the Bible Church Little Rock and at the time, the pastor of that church was Dr. Steve Lawson, who I'm sure many of you have heard of before. Um, and so he was my pastor in my formative teenage years. And then he eventually left that church to go to uh, Dolphin Way, where... I preached there. Yeah, where he shrunk it down to almost a uh, shadow of its former glory and then moved down the street. Uh, so we'll talk about some of uh, the ugly parts about that. Um, and then, uh, Leighton, what's your background with Calvinism? Because uh, people know that you used to be one because everyone talks about how yeah. you're obviously liar or you never really was, you know, the no true Scotsman. But but refresh our audience for it, your background. I'll, I'll tell the story. Basically, uh, Leighton was a Calvinist, but he noticed that he was constantly being bullied by Calvinists and they hurt his feelings all the time. That's and it. There's some. I think if you were to go to a therapist where they did some of that, um, repressed memory type stuff, we would find out that some Calvinists really hurt him. So even though he's like six foot nine and it was a former football player, a bunch of stubby, they were really Calvinists big, they were really, really big mean Calvinists. to him. The, the, the cosplay lumberjack Calvinists were super mean. To, yeah. That's the, okay. no, what happened Layton? Yeah. You know, I was raised in a, a typical Southern Baptist church. And so I, I think, you know, a lot of the the Calvinists that critique me, especially in the the Reformed Baptist tradition or the hardline, you know, Presbyterian type Reformed Calvinists, um, they're probably accurate to say I wasn't like them. 
I was more of a Southern Baptist type of Calvinist. Um, J.D. Greer kind of a guy, you know, it wasn't, it, 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 it was something that I believed, I taught, I, I believed TULIP, the basic concept of TULIP, but um, I didn't like calling myself a Calvinist because of the misconceptions of Calvinism um, when I became one, uh, it, you know, at the age of 19. Um, but I was a big John Piper fan, MacArthur fan, Sproul fan, got all the Lingardner tapes in the mail and all that kind of stuff. And I converted a lot of people while I was a college minister there at University Baptist in Abilene. I converted a lot of the, the students that came through my program into Calvinism, some of which are still Calvinists today. Uh, Matt Chandler uh, was one of the ones that, that taught over at university at the ministry called Grace. And I helped to convert him into believing limited atonement. And so uh, he was a year younger than me. Well, I think so what we, you, you know, God used you as a means to yes. convert him. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's what I meant. Um, and so, uh, you know, at thir- you know, that was pretty much in my twenties, all the way from age nineteen to about twenty nine thirty. I was a card carrying Calvinist in that sense. Went went to the the founders ministry um, conferences with my pastor and the other Calvinist you know ministers in the church that I was a part of that had split off of our home church. Um, there in, in Wiley, it's still there, uh, Cornerstone Baptist church there in Wiley, Texas, it still exists. Um, and it, I was a minister, uh, in that church and we went to the founders ministry you know, of the Southern Baptist convention, um, conferences. And that's, that was my group. That was, those were my peeps, so to speak. Those were my, that, that was my clan, my people. Um, and so even, even today there are different kinds of Calvinists out there. A lot of Calvinists that are in the Presbyterian or, you know, reformed Baptist you know, kind of groups don't really like the founders all that much or don't agree with some of the founders ministry, you know, materials either. And so, um, you know, some of those guys are not going to ever see me as one of them, you know, because I never was really one of them. And, and that's fine. It, it doesn't, that doesn't really bother me when people don't think that I was a true Calvinist or truly reformed in the same way they were, because they may be right to some level. The point is, is that I affirmed the concepts of predestination from a Calvinistic perspective. I interpreted TULIP in the, in the Calvinistic way that TULIP is usually explained and, and expounded upon. And I converted a lot of people to believe that way using a lot of the same very popular arguments that are used by Calvinists today. And so uh, that's just kind of the fact of the matter of what happened in my own, you know, my own journey. So what's let, more let, embarrassing? Let, let me say something oh. real quick. Is, is first of all, I wanted to just mention that uh, we are going to talk about, as the title suggests, the good and the bad of yes. Calvinist culture in the church. And just want to make the typical uh, disclaimer that Pritchett doesn't want me to have to make, that we're not just the channel that loves atheists, we're also the channel that loves Calvinists. And we have we have uh, Calvinist students. We have had Calvinist professors. We have a Calvinist professor. We have uh, and, and we love our Calvinist brothers and sisters. They're still our brothers and sisters. All things being equal, um, just wanted to put that out there. Yeah, uh, Calvin. The the only Calvinists I don't like um, are the ones that like if I post something about hey, let's be sure and eat healthy this week, and they're like this always these trolls on Twitter was like, are you going to use your free will to what? Yes, I am. actually. Well, yeah, but I mean, they're just always, are you going to worship your God of free will to help you make better to choose to eat? But it's like, I don't even know why they're like that. 
that's part of the bad. We'll get to the bad later. But uh, first, I wanted to ask, Lay, what's more embarrassing that you were a Southern Baptist Calvinist, which means you were kind of, I don't know, kind of a, a wishy-washy Calvinist, or the fact that I was a Calvispensationalist in the John MacArthur, Steve Lawson tradition, where we were both. I mean, we're, that's fake Calvinism. I mean, at least the Presbyterians have it right with covenantal theology. But but I was a full-blown dispensational Calvinist, like with a straight face. That's what they are. And so what do you think is more embarrassing? Is it a dispensational Calvinist what or a Southern Baptist? A John MacArthur Calvinist or what? A Southern Baptist Calvinist. Or I don't know what I am Calvinist. I like the tulip <laughs> thing. That kind of cal- that's that's well, the SBC I mean, there's there, there's probably a lot of similarities and crossover between those two because a lot of my peeps, the people in that group, really love John MacArthur, and there are a lot of dispensationalists within the the Baptist world too. I know DTS yeah. here in in Dallas is big dispensationalist type of church and, and leans Calvinistically, um, but a lot of times you don't see dispensationalism crossing over with Calvinism as much, um, and so that's where uh, MacArthur was a little bit of a strange you know breed. Um, yeah. And he wasn't near as Calvinistic as he is now in, you know, the 70s and 80s when you go back and listen to his sermons. In fact, I've played several sermons on my broadcast um, where he, he teaches provisionism, as far as I can tell, and it, it makes a case for our, our point of view with, with regard to God's provision. And that's true of even, you know, Piper and other, you know, well-known Calvinists today. You go back and listen to their sermons when they were, quote unquote, less known for their Calvinism. Um, there's a lot of sermons and things, Tim Keller, especially uh, that, you know, most of his messages all throughout his life sounded very provisionistic or non-Calvinistic. And, um, and so sometimes it's, it's kind of hard to tell unless you know what to look for. Well, I think in, in the, in the eighties and nineties, um, Hey Edward, thanks for being our Calvinist student. Ah, we love you. You're not alone. A, A true apologist right there. Um, in the 80s and 90s, I, I do think with with MacArthur and the dispensationalism and stuff, see, uh, we're all old. And a lot of the people that watch our, our program probably aren't as old as we are. We're really, really old people. And so I'm old enough to remember, like, prior to and the build-up to the Left Behind series. And so back then, dispensationalism was huge. It's not the case now. But dispensationalism, I think, was a great hook to get people into Calvinist theology for the MacArthurites and, and the fact that his Grace to You program was on the radio is this thing that, uh, you know, you, most people, I guess they Bluetooth their phones for audio now, but there, we had these things called radios and they had radio stations and Christians would broadcast their program on it. And so with all of that, um, I think that was a pretty big hook uh, in the, like the 80s and 90s. But then after the left behind fatigue, you started to see the rise of the Calvinist online conference culture, you know, publishing, I call it the publishing glut of Calvinist books, like all of a sudden in the, I want to say the mid, by the mid two thousands, like every other book being published from evangelical publishers was a Calvinist book and why Calvinism is super awesome and why you should be a Calvinism and Arminianism sucks. And all of these books that came out, those aren't the actual, well, they might be some actual titles given how many they were, but so that was the general gist of it. And then these conferences, like it used to be in, in, in the olden days, like your dad's time when your dad would have a prophecy conference at his big old church. I mean, 
hundreds and thousands of people show up for the prophecy. But then it became the Calvinist, and you had like, hooray for Calvinism, and we're all together for Calvinism, and Calvinism is the gospel uh, coalition, Calvinism. And all of these little organizations started having these conferences that just attracted thousands of people to them. And, you know, they were willing to pay. Are you trying to set up the show by talking about this created a culture? Yeah. I'm trying to get Well, and the shift of the culture uh, yeah. and why Calvinism, I think, from ha, has been on the steady progression. I think it kicked off with John MacArthur, um, really. And then it, it progressed into this, like, together for the gospel and gospel coalition and all that stuff. And, and then of sort there was the, I mean, you can remember back in, what, 10, 12 years ago, the online heated debates and all of that was going on. And you had the cage stage Calvinist phenomenon going on. You had the Mark Driscoll thing. And there was just so much going on. And then in latter years, all of that has seemingly collapsed and it's imploding on itself. And all these Calvinist factions are fighting. So that's just kind of give a broad overview. So you've of, got different types of, of Calvinists, yeah. whether that is true of their specific beliefs, which it, it, it could be, at least with social things for sure, as we're going to move forward. But yeah. Social um, and political. And political. Yeah. But, but you have these different types of Calvinists, and sometimes you have different doctrinal positions, obviously. And so let's get into it. Yeah, so Calvinism— what, the, the doctrine of the, the tulip brought Sproul and, and, and MacArthur to get and Presbyterian and, you know, for all intents and purposes, MacArthur was a Baptist. And they were all this, you know, they all had the together for the gospel because they thought Calvinism is basically, to quote Spurgeon, the gospel. And so they had their big club that differences of opinions on all kinds of things, but Calvinism and complementarianism was the things that they kind of rallied behind in the, during those, you know, the, the, mid to late, uh, you know, aughts or whatever. Uh, but going back for me, here are some good things that I, I can say for Calvinists. Okay. Are we going to talk about the specific people that are on the thumbnail? Or? Well, we'll get to that. Okay. But just, just to butter up our audience, there are, believe it or not, I have wonderful things to say about Calvinism. Well, let's, let's do it. The first thing is I've been a, I was a member of two uh, Calvinist churches. One was uh, the Bible Church of Little Rock where Steve Lawson was pastor, and the other was Remount Baptist Church in North Aurora, where my friend John Winters was pastor. And at both of those churches, and then several of the ones that I visited, one of the things that I love about Calvinist churches is they take theological education very, very seriously. And you don't find that in as much in non-reformed churches. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, they're, they, are, they are all about their confession, whether it's the 1689 or the Westminster or whatever. They're all about having big, robust church libraries. <clears throat> they're all about indoctrinating and you publishing. and catechizing you. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're serious so you, you about- You want to get Leighton's take on all this? Huh? You want to get Leighton's take on this? Yeah, so was that your, ex <laughs> yeah. Do you have any, do yeah, you have I, any sort I, I mean, of- I, I, even just recently, I saw on Twitter uh, a guy with a big long beard, you know, of course, and he had a shirt on that says, I was a Calvinist before it was cool. And that, that kind of captures what you're talking about, because I remember back in the 80s, 90s, before Calvinism was cool, because when I became a Calvinist, it wasn't cool to be a Calvinist. You kind of you were kind of a stealth Calvinist if you were one, because people saw it as a lot more cultic and it was, you know, not popular at all. Um, and and so you kind of you, you kind of kept it to yourself and you stayed within your little groups. And so what, what happens whenever a particular way of thinking, a particular group comes into power, so to speak, where they, they become the, 
the driving force of the largest Protestant denomination in the world, like they did with Southern Baptist, they become a lot more outspoken. They become a lot more, you know, uh, pub, you know, putting out publications, prolific in all their writings and all their things, and everybody wants to be like them. And so you you have all of this kind of cult-like following. Uh, and I, I'm not using cult in a in a the most negative sense there. I mean, a, any any group can have a cult-like following in the sense that you have a, a fanboys, you know, that just love everything that that person is putting out, and they wear their buy their t-shirts and buy their books, and and it, and it, that that happened all during our you know our coming to have age in the theological world, and so that that's the that's the cultural shift I think you really saw happening, and and it's just now I think that we're seeing in the last ten years or so once the Calvinists have stopped kind of fighting with the non-Calvinists because they've won for, for the most part with regard to who's in charge, now they can turn their sights onto each other about whatever, you know, differences they have with them themselves, within themselves. And I think that's what you start seeing now in this, in this, this environment is a lot of the Calvinists begin to pick each other apart with regard to the differences of opinions that they have with, you know, the woke, you know, movement and, um, you know, you already mentioned, um, you know, complementarianism versus egalitarianism. That's becoming a bigger issue. Um, the Black Lives Matter, you know, uh, controversies and all those things that are happening in our culture now. Now, Calvinists on, are taking sides. Both of them affirm Calvinism, but they're, they're, they're approaching those cultural issues in different ways. And now you see those divisions begin even among the Calvinists, and that creates different cultures. Yeah, so, I, I labeled them like, what, about four years ago, you could find posts where I started breaking them into categories. I, I call them the old Venice, which is the old Calvinists, like the, the suit and tie Calvinists. And then you had the woke Venists, which, uh, which I, I, you know, you know who called this, by the way? You remember... <laughs> J.D. Hall, he's probably written about 75 articles about you before he went away or whatever. But he called this most a long them, time most ago. Of them false, false, uh, most of them false, R by the way. Absolutely. Just, you know. But, but yeah. one of the things I'll give him credit for is he saw all this Calvinism implosion and infighting coming because he, he pointed to Al Mohler. And I think he was probably right about that because Al Mohler kind of sat in the middle of the old Venice, you know, the button down Calvinists and the new woke Venice that we're all teaching at uh, Southern uh, Baptist Theological Seminary. I think some of them have since moved on. Uh, but, you know, I mean, he he platformed a lot of the people that people on, the, say, the more conservative old school Calvinists are now decrying all over Twitter and they all hate each other. And it's I mean, I don't. I don't think schadenfreude is a good thing, but I mean, you know, it, it, it's something, it's a, it's, it's kind of like one of those things was like, <clears throat> told you. So, but, yeah. so let me, let me jump in here. So as I am trying to connect with what you brought as a topic today, Jonathan, and I'm thinking about the churches that I've been in and you asked me, have I been in Calvinist churches? And I have. And, uh, what I find is I've not been in probably the, the, what you're describing as the woke Calvinist churches. But I've been in churches with a guy who identifies as a Calvinist, let's say. This has been a lot of the churches. And he would say he's a Calvinist, probably because the, it, was, it was a Southern Baptist church or something. And so it was, it was common in decades past to say, well, yeah, of course I'm a Calvinist. I believe in uh, eternal security or something. you know. And so they might say they're a Calvinist, and they might use a lot of the language that the Calvinist commentaries will use. But, they, but then if you ask them if they believe in free will in the sense and then describe it to them as libertarian free will. Well, yeah, of course. 
So they're kind of like a um, inconsistent Calvinist, as we. And they say. have the contemporary worship and all. And they that. have their 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 actual uh, like, um, what happens practically is no different than a non-Calvinist. Yeah, see, that's the that's the middle group. That's so, what I call the hipvenists. Okay, that's the hipvenists. They're, the they're not always hip. They're sometimes they're just they're just old guys. Well, <laughs> but they don't tuck it. They're like our preacher. He still doesn't tuck his shirt in, probably. So okay, I mean, there's some like should, that. But I'm, right. but I'm telling you, I think there's some guys that have come out of seminary, or maybe they didn't go to seminary, and they will say, "No, I'm a Calvinist." But they have the clip-on tie and the short button-up. Like Paul sleeve. Cooper was a hypnotist until he. Yeah, he was a hypnotist until he uh, was convinced but, by Leighton and not you uh, to but, leave Calvinism. You know, I, I was just <laughs> I hoped that that would just flutter by. But anyway, uh, so so I've had those kind, and then I've seen the kinds of churches where. Uh, and I'll kick it back to you in a second, Leighton, because we need to let you talk. But I've I've also um, been in the churches where, same deal, but they are very serious about the fact that they're Calvinists and they know what it means and they've studied this out. And uh, and in those churches, maybe it it will it will probably affect practically how they handle certain aspects of church life. For example, they may not have altar calls or they may have a very different type of looking invitation. They they will be more often more closed off to uh, uh, things that we would call charismatic than even a, a person, a typical Southern Baptist might be, you know, th those kind of things. But more or less, you're still going to have a fine, you know, experience there. It's going to be very much like whatever denomination it's in. Uh, then you have on the other hand of this, on the other side of this thing, you're saying, okay, we have the woke ones, but now there's another type of person here. And so maybe there's more because this type of person I'm going to describe is a person who comes into a church and this is not necessarily logically connected to their Calvinism, but they will be oftentimes, oftentimes some of these people can be very um, controlling of uh, aspects of the church that other pastors might not even get too interested in. You know, they might make sure that I, I have one ex example and it's just anecdotal. Um, a pastor might decide that if you are not able to be here every Sunday then you can't be involved in anything related to the service of the church, like taking up the offering or a greeter or anything like that. And, and that, and I've seen stuff like that lead to uh, the church getting smaller and, you know, sometimes it needs to, but, but I think there is a hard nosed Calvinist. And then there are these guys that don't, you know, they know what they're talking about, but it doesn't affect much. It'll affect a little bit, but not much. And then you have the guys yeah. that call themselves Calvinists and they're not. <laughs> really Calvinist. So, and then you have the well, and, and there's and there's the there's the there, there's the categories like this on the non-Calvinist side too. You have more the fundamentalists, you know, hardliners with you know real strict rules, and then the the more you know moderate kind of guys that are a little bit more free uh, with the you know you know drinking of alcohol or smoking or something like that. You have different groups of people. Um, and, and there's some groups that I, you know, I get along better than with others. I mean, it, it whether the Calvinist or not, uh, just because maybe of where, where I've, you know, I've kind of landed over the course of my own journey. Cause I, I was a pretty hard line, kind of a Calvinist, a very complementarian kind of fundamentalist type of, of, of guy in my early years. Um, and, and I have really backed away from that in a lot of ways because of not just leaving Calvinism. Um, it was really more of just experiencing grace. Um, those who are forgiven much tend to love much and, and tend to be a little bit more forgiving and gracious towards those who have differing views on secondary matters. At least that's been my experience. And I'm not trying to say anybody who has a, you know, a hardline view on a particular thing is not forgiving or hasn't been graced by God, but it, it just seems to me that 
the the people that I tend to get along with, you know, you 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 have Joe Thorne, for example, on your your thumbnail there. He and I had some disagreements back and forth, and we did dueling, you know, videos over the years. Um, but Joe and I have always got along really well. Um, and and even though Joe, you know, has some views that other Calvinists would look down upon, maybe because he, you know, all the tattoos and the long beards and the smoking and those kinds of things. Um, he's also just a really nice guy and he, 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 he treats me with respect, even though we disagree with each other. And so someone like Joe, he and I, I think probably if he lived here locally, he would probably be one of my friends that I'd hang out with because he's, he reminds me a lot of my friend, Jason, who's Calvinistic leaning and has tattoos and smokes and drinks and all that kind of fun stuff. And he's the kind of guy that is a fun guy to hang out with. And he doesn't judge me and he doesn't look down upon me because I don't believe the same way that he does. Um, we, we argue with each other about it, but we love each other and would do anything for each other. Um, and I think Joe would be that kind of friend to me if I lived in his neighborhood or if I was, you know, at his church. And so that's the, the, the way that Joe strikes me in, in our casual conversations that we've had with each other. Um, others, I, I honestly, I'm not going to name names on this one, but I honestly think that if they found out that I did something that they don't approve of, that they would write me off immediately and damn me to hell. Um, oh, some of them already have written I, you off and damned you to hell, by the way. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I just don't have uh, this life. I don't know. I just, I'm about to turn 50. Um, I'm, I'm 49 and this life is way too dang short to waste on that. Sorry. Yeah. That's just the way yeah, I felt that's about gonna, it. I just, amen, before man. we get to the, the horrible things about Calvinism, cause that's what our audience is really looking forward to. Uh, aside from church education, I do want to say now that you brought up like the Joe Thorne, he's what I put in the hip Venice category. Uh, one of the great things that Calvinism has contributed to broader evangelicalism is that they really took the shift that started happening in the 90s, but they really got out of the fundamentalist funk uh, and decided it's so to loosen up the, you know, the tie a little bit to, to, to really get rid of a lot of the legalism that I grew up with, um, even in Calvinist churches. Um, they were more like... Um, yeah, if you're going to have a beer, no big deal. If you're going to smoke a cigarette or a cigar or something, no big deal, whatever. You know, you don't have to wear a suit to church and stuff. So they kind of they kind of kicked off a lot of the the um, the legalism that I remember growing up with. And, and it's, I think that that has overall been a blessing, because while some of what I call the Olvenist, if you're not John MacArthur, you have a problem of church shrinking you've experienced some of this from you've left a church a calvinist pastor came in and the church just dwindled to nothing but you also have these calvinist churches that will spring up and within two years they're running 600 to a thousand just i mean which is in church life it's like overnight almost compared to the churches down the street that are kind of bitter about it that mm -hmm. uh so so they they were able to really do a lot of outreach. Now, I know that some of that people are going to push back that, that know better. They're going to say, well, some of that was they were attracting people that were Calvinists in non-Calvinist churches and kind of consolidating them into these larger churches. But even with that going on, there was still a lot of outreach and stuff. So I think the hypnists, uh contributed a positive overall thing that had an impact to even non-Calvinist churches to let the hair down a little bit. And so I, I think that that's a good thing, but I do think Calvinist's impact on evangelicalism and then what's going on right now, uh, if, if Twitter is to be believed. And I stopped thinking Twitter was fake and not real life 
after the past two Southern Baptist conventions. Mm-hmm. Twitter is real life in the evangelical world. And so watching watching all what's going on now, um, I think a lot of that has goes back to the cage stage thing. Because the cage stage thing, I remember 10, 12 years ago, we would just talk theology with people and then we would get slammed with your Pelagian heritage. Thanks, Mr. Green. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And we would get just nasty, nasty. And so I would get nasty back. That became my thing. If you're going to get nasty with me, I'm going to get nasty with you. But they just, there's, there seems to be this underlying current in Calvinism to where if they are going to go after somebody, whether it's, non-Calvinists or, or, or even their Calvinist opponents, they can get pretty nasty. Yeah. What are are we talking well, about the bad stuff yet? Is that what yeah, we're okay. Yeah. I, well, I, I'll give, I'll give one negative and one positive of the Calvinistic movement over the years that I've noticed. Let, let's do the positive first. Um, they, they take theology seriously. Uh, they, they were, they were a pendulum swing away from the real seeker sensitive model of the Rick Warrens and Bill Hybels where it says, you know, who cares what the lost person thinks? What does God think? And there's some truth in that. And I, I think there's some also some truth in us um, uh, making appeals to the lost and, and making our churches where they, they don't drive away lost people. I mean, I mean, I think there's some good in what Rick Warren and Bill Hybels and that group taught us. So I'm not trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater with that. But the pendulum swinging around that, that um, seeker-sensitive model from the, the Pipers and the Sprules and the MacArthur's of the world, I think there are some positive aspects of let's, let's, let's focus on exegesis. Let's focus on Scripture as being our authority instead of pragmatic, you know, uh, seeker-sensitive growth strategies to make our church look as much like the world as possible. I, I think they had some strong points there. And because of that, they really highlighted theology and the glory of God and understanding the, the bigness of God and and how important we need to treat this as not just, uh, we need to treat Christianity as if it is the most important thing because it is. And most Calvinists that I know, because of that, take theology real seriously. And they really, uh, they, they study their Bibles and they really want to know more and they want to drive down deep. And I like that about most of my Calvinist friends. It's one of the reasons a lot of times if I'm hanging out with people, sometimes I'd rather hang out with Calvinist guys because at least they know something about what they're talking about. Whereas most of the non-Calvinist, whatever nebulous group that may be out there, a lot of them haven't ever studied this stuff and they're just going, huh? You know, and they right. Yeah. I, I, I would say, say that they probably okay. go ahead. helped in the sense that they made non-Calvinists become better at arguing their position back to, against mm-hmm. Calvinists because they were pretty lazy for a long time and their arguments have finally gotten better. Sorry. that's funny. Uh, Yeah. I was just going to say a, a nuance point, not exactly the same point that, that you're making is it occurs to me, and this is completely anecdotal, but again, and, and this is the only thing I'll say for myself, I speak as a fool, but it is from a guy who has spoken in hundreds of churches of various denominations. And I can tell you, it seems to me that non-Calvinists, are more likely than Calvinists. Of course, when we say non-Calvinists, we're basically talking about the rest of Christianity. So that's a huge swath. Right, right. But um, when you but but it seems to me that non-Calvinists are pastors and church people are more likely to be the type of uh, Christian 
who, who will take their speculations more seriously than maybe they should in certain circumstances. And this goes back to the whole, no, 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 we're going to what the Bible says. Every evangelical should say that, and every Southern yes. Baptist will say that. But the truth is, do they mean it or not? Because I've seen a lot of reasoning that goes something like this. Well, you know, when I look at this passage, I, I think one thing that it could mean is this. And this one over here also could mean something kind of like that. And when I put those together, it would mean this. And so that's what I'm going to preach. And it's like, hold on, man. Right. You're letting your speculations run a little wild here. Whereas Calvinists uh, often have more of a built-in sort of uh, governor there to go, whoa, 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 whoa. Where's the proof text for that? How do I defend that? And I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and you know the the flip side of the coin for the positive, the, you know, the positive being um, all those things that we already said about them really highlighting, uh, you know, exegetical, um, you know, preaching, um, you know, going through the scriptures and highlighting the glory of God, all the positive sides of things. The the negative side of that can be somewhat of a kind of feeling of superiority over those who are not like them. Or, or don't who don't think like them, and this is one of the reasons that when I came out of Calvinism, I really didn't want to tell anybody because I remember how I, as a Calvinist, thought about everybody who wasn't a Calvinist, because I had a general feeling about everyone who wasn't a Calvinist. This feeling of well, they're theologically lazy, they're emotionally based, um, they're not serious thinkers, um, yeah. they're not depth exegetical types of Christians. That's what I thought of about all the non-Calvinists out there, because that's what I had experienced from mm -hmm. all the non-Calvinists that I had encountered. And so it, it was only when I really began to study and get into this you know, discussion that I began to be introduced to the robust teachers and the deep theological minds that the other side has to offer, because I, I, they weren't real popular like the Pipers of the world. And so I just didn't know they existed. And so I, I felt like a fish out of water, so to speak, when I came out of Calvinism, because I didn't have a place to belong. I didn't have a brotherhood of people I wanted to be identified with. I was ashamed right. of being a non-Calvinist because non-Calvinists weren't representing themselves very well, at least, at least in the public sphere. And so the negative side of that, what, it, what it, I think it produces among the Calvinists is this superiority complex. I had it too. I'm not trying to, I'm not preaching at Calvinist this way. And a matter of fact, other Calvinists like Piper and, and others have called out uh, the cage stagers and, and other Calvinists who become like this, where they become kind of prideful. And the, the reason that happens, it, it, it's because when you're a Calvinist, and I, I had this happen several times, I'd go to professors um, who were longtime professors and bring up this topic. And I could, I could literally run circles around them on this topic as a Calvinist, and they were a professor of theology. And I'm going, what, what how in the world do you not understand this? And I, I thought of Ar Arminians are idiots. I mean, they're just, I mean, they're, they're not real bright here. And that, what does that automatically do, do to you? I don't actually think yeah. I hold to a view that's just more superior than these other guys hold to, because none of them know how to defend it. None of them even, they, they like, they seem surprised when I bring up this verse. Like they've never really understood it. They they want to run away from it. They use emotional appeals. They they you know do all this other you know, stuff. But, except but Leighton, one of the it. funniest things about that is when and you experience whatever somebody's position is on any issue, when they have that sort of a vibe or they have that sort of an outlook that uh, oh my gosh, people that don't see this, they're just not seeing it. You know, they just can't. They're yeah. missing they something, and they haven't. You know, uh, th those kind of people. The great thing is when somebody like you comes along and then does that 
and, and then challenges them in a way that they can't answer. And then they, they totally don't see it coming because they thought, well, this is completely defensible. This is so obvious. And, and that's, um, that's one of yeah. the reasons that the reaction towards me from many Calvinists is so vitriolic because when you back somebody into a corner, what do they do? They strike out at you. They, the ad hominems, you know, the, he's the tall gremlin. He's the one string banjo. This is all he ever talks about. He's obsessed. He, he, he does analogies. All he does is tell stories and all these kinds of accusations. And we're going, what, did, what does any of that have to do with the theological point we just made? I mean, is it, Jesus is it possible told to, stories, but okay. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's one of those things you're going, okay, I, I tell too many stories. I was a youth pastor for 12 years. Sue me. Okay. I, I like to right. tell stories. I use parables to help explain my exegetical findings. But just because I use stories and uh, analogies doesn't mean I didn't do exegesis to come to the conclusion that I came to. And so you you have these kinds of just, you know, fr people throwing smoke and throwing grenades into the, the middle of things just, you know, and saying, oh, Leighton's this or Leighton's that without giving me a fair hearing, mostly hearing about me through my opponents versus actually giving me fair hearing. Um, and, and what I'm doing to them is basically what they're used to doing to all the Arminians, uh, non-Calvinist of the world out there. They're used to going in and just destroying the arguments from the Arminian because the Arminian mostly doesn't know what he's talking about. Usually I'm speaking generally of the non-Calvinist out there. Most of them don't have any clue as to what that, what they believe about the doctrine of predestination. Well, the, the opposite is true. Most Calvinists have no idea what the actual scholars who know what they're talking about from our perspective, think and believe. And it's really easy to get them backed into a corner theologically when, when you know what you're talking about and the Calvinist doesn't know the scholarly, the scholarly view of the other side. And listen, when I'm saying that, I'm not trying to be overly bombastic or mean about it. Even the best of the best scholars who debate this for a living, like James White, you can watch his broadcast and you can see him coming to understand our view for the very first time on the program where he'll say things like, well, I don't think Leighton holds to that, does he? And he'll be like looking at Rich and like he's discovering it for the first time. This is a guy who spends his life debating people like us, and he still doesn't follow most of the arguments that I make on my program because he hasn't taken the time to really engage. Why? Because our view is superior. We already have it figured out. We, we're kind of this elite group up here, and we really don't need to bother ourselves with all those you know, silly little emotional Calvin, I mean, Arminians out there who don't really know what they're talking about, you know, who are just emotionally based and don't really, you know, think about these things deeply like we do. And so they just, they just surface level discussions that they're used to. They stay at that inch deep surface level discussion through their entire, and they're really good at beating people at that inch deep level, but they go below the inch deep. They have no meat. They have no arguments that are strong that I have found. And, and again, I know Calvinists would want to disagree with that, but that's been my experience with this whole discussion is that very few Calvinists are willing to go beyond the surface level of this arguments. And, and then once you do take them to that level, um, most of the time they'll turn personal or get angry. I mean, my, my, my experience has been, uh, there's just, because I, I mean, you can go into my office and see uh, a lot, you know, probably half of it is reformed literature, just simply because they the same i mean not all of it uh, all of it dealing with calvinism per se but calvinist authors and stuff um but having been seeped but, in it but jonathan you you have this one in your in your bathroom 
So right, we have it's a in the bathroom, right next to the toilet paper, and I, I make the choice every yeah. time because I have free will. And I, <laughs> so far, I'm still choosing the toilet paper, but I mean. <laughs> Uh, when you, you run never out, know you never know. I mean, there was that time in 2020. Okay, but, well, what, what about the woke Calvinism stuff? Well, I was going to say, well, theologically, they all argue basically the same. Layton's kind of right. And when you look, when I look through my library, it it is that. And I see that, that there's a, one of the biggest things, and we've talked about it with Dr. Allen, we've talked about it with Dr. Harwood, we've talked about it with Dr. Flowers before, is there's a lot of self-referential incoherence. No, self-referential. Uh, referential citations oh. so they're 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 citing the uh, frame john frames the worst he'll cite his own books like so many times in his other books um and then there's just a lot of citing of more calvinists right mm -hmm. and whether it's their scholarship or it's the conversation on facebook or whatever they just do not read that far outside well, of their look own at, yeah look at derek's comment De derek bueller's comment there about james white's book which we actually um require people to read at trinity uh for yeah. my course i want them to read both sides so they'll read white's book and my book and so we're trying to give a, a fair hair fair hearing but derek is, is is making a valid point i know um nick uh did a a, a critique of the, the uh, potter's um freedom by james white and it, this is true. It's it's held as the antidote to Arminianism, but he doesn't he doesn't even quote the scholarly Arminians in order to combat them. Mm, um, he'll right. tell you what he thinks they mean or he thinks they believe what they think he believe. Ninety percent of the time, he gets it wrong, or and he then he attacks the straw man. He referenced Geisler a few times in there, but I mean, a lot of times he well, didn't reference anything. It's not a lot of footnotes, but um, in that book, anyway, uh, some of his other books have more documentation, but. That book doesn't have much of anything in it, uh, but but they just don't read. And so when I have conversations uh, with Calvinist interlocutors, which is less than I used to, but I mean, it's, I, I don't still party like it's 2012 the way you do, Layton. But um, it's when, when I talk to them, I still have a hard time discussing anything because I'm like, you're coming at this with 16th century categories as if you've read nothing about the ancient world. You've read no... Um, social science book about the world of the new testament let alone read any greco-roman literature even translated so i have a hard time even getting off the ground because when they start talking about grace and i'm talking about grace i'm talking about patient client reciprocity they're just scratching their heads like what are you talking about and i'm like well i mean you can start with seneca who's a contemporary of paul writing Kone, but it just it, conversations that they just haven't read some so much scholarship out there that it's even hard to get off the ground with a lot of them because i'm like we can, we agree on every verse in the Bible what it says. We every verse you read to me, I agree with what it says. We differ on what it means, but there is like a world of difference between what we carry as far as our principles, our filters, our lenses, or whatever you want to say for hermeneutics and exegesis can sometimes be so worlds apart that it's hard to even have debates because they can't even follow with what you're saying because they don't even think in the same category and right. the shift for me happened uh, in the mid-2000s when i read um david de silva's book and i've talked about mm -hmm. that that kind of kicked off that rabbit trail where i got into social science and rhetorical criticism but for a lot of them it's like they don't they never even scratch the surface with with, with some of that stuff so it's really hard when i remember being a calvinist 
and coming out of it having my mind blown by that kind of stuff because it's like I'd never had encountered any of this material and let alone just like I mean I've heard as far as Armenianism goes the Roger Olson case for our, you know Armenians that kind of thing but just the deeper exegetical toolkits that you had to put together to, to understand the New Testament on its own terms that you get with like a Witherington or a Keener or, or some of those guys I mean, it's just like writing the you know reading those that material is just off the radar for Calvinists, and I think that they w- would do themselves well to start reading Beyond Their Tradition. Hey, real quick, yeah, I wanted absolutely. to say, Christoph, man, thanks Thank for you. that super chat, and it looks like you have also been a channel member for two years or more, and thank you for that. Christoph says, without Calvin's views on the sacraments and on ecclesiology, they're not Calvinists, but tulipists. James White isn't a Calvinist either. Yeah, I would agree with that, and I agree with John Calvin's chapter or book four, chapter seventeen on on that, like with the Lord's Supper, dead on. And I'm not a Calvinist at all, but I I agree with uh, Calvin on things that are unrelated to soteriology. That I think a lot of the Baptists wouldn't, as far as like a, a form of real presence in mm-hmm. the Eucharist and, and th- some of the sacramental stuff. So mm-hmm. yeah, uh, well, well, we'll get to uh, maybe the woke side of this in a minute, but let's get some questions real quick just to keep things moving and interesting. One that I didn't get that I wanted to ask was uh, somebody asked, it may have been Neeland, why do you think there's so much disdain for Calvinists uh, or for Calvinism, or I don't remember how he asked it among people on our side of this thing? Leighton? Well, uh, you know, some people who didn't ever become a Calvinist or were never part of the Calvinistic, you know, groups or anything like that um, only only know about Calvinists from what they've seen online. And the online representation of any group is probably not the best because you've got a lot of people who are, you know, the quote-unquote basement dwellers um, who, uh, you know, or because they have the the privacy of a screen and the anonymity of an avatar or whatever, uh, they they'll say some of the grossest and meanest things. And again, that's that's of all groups, you know, not just the Calvinistic group. I, no no group is very well represented by the the online representation of whatever group it is. Um, and so that that's part of the problem is that when people only know Calvinism from what they've experienced in the online chat world. Um, they're going to have a really, really bad opinion versus the way I experienced Calvinists. Um, the mentor who led me into Calvinism is one of the most kind, gentle-hearted, loving men that you could ever meet. Uh, his name is Steve Harden. He just texted me the other day, uh, just just some sweet words of, of advice for me, and, and I just love this man. And I I, I don't even I don't know if he's still a Calvinist. He was when he was thirty something when he introduced me to Calvinism, but I don't even care. Um, he's just one of those guys that has always been a huge influence on my life and has always, I've just, I've just love this man. Um, and you know, Matt Chandler and others, great friends, people that I, I w- don't really care whether they're a Calvinist all that, all that much that, yeah. you know, I, I get along with them just fine. And my whole world of, of my friend, Jason and others that I talked about who are Calvinistic guys, we all get along really well and they're friendly and they're loving people and they're, they're gracious and they're missionaries and they're helping in the homeless and they're doing all the same things that all the other Christians are doing in my community and around the world. And so I don't have all of these pent up negative feelings towards the heretic Calvinists that I want to go, you know, yell down. And, and you, believe it or not, even though I'm railed on as the anti-Calvinist and you just hate Calvinist kind of a person, this is usually the accusation made by people who don't know me very well or haven't listened to me very long. The, the biggest comments I get in opposition to me 
are from people who are not Calvinists who think I should be meaner to Calvinists and I should call them heretics and I should call them out. I mean, that, that is the biggest, uh, yeah. you know, comments that I get the, the most of the most quality, yeah, I mean, quantity some, of comments. Some of the, some of the people like in your security, I mean, I know that you're not like running around policing your own Facebook group, but like a lot of the people in the soteriology one-on-one, I mean, we talk about cage stage Calvinists, but they are, I mean, they are some of the nastiest people on the other side too. And I think that they adopted that to be fair to them. They adopted that because they got tired of the Calvinist attitude and decided, well, if you're going to sling it, I can sling it back. But shoot there. I mean, because I don't accept eternal security, there's people in Layton's group that think I'm going to hell. Yeah. And so, yeah. It, you know, well, there's you might nasty be. people on both sides. Slam RN says I was a Calvinist <laughs> for 18 months after watching the dividing line for two years. Then I came across soteriology 101 and watched that for two years. The antidote. The real yes. antidote. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there's a. There's hey, a, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Nathan is here. Oh, yeah. Nathan, I met last week. I was in Tampa this past weekend. Spoke nine times in basically two days. It started on a Friday night and did a two and a half hour Q&A. And Nathan was there. Nathan was there. I would have put a picture up of you up, Nathan. But yeah. And then I sat on the tarmac for an hour and a half trying to get out of Tampa because it was I was thinking I was going to be stuck there for a while, but I made it home. But I want you to know there was like several Trinity radio people that showed up at the church in Tampa for that apologetics conference who don't go to that church. They just found out that I was going to be there. That really mattered to me. And I want you to know I, I, that means yeah. a lot to me. Um, Naomi had a super chat. Yeah, so. there is. And then I wanted to get some other questions. Thank you so much, to. Naomi. She says, where should we start when trying to explain our position to a Calvinist who sees scripture through such a different lens? My pastor wants to discuss soon, and I'm not sure where to start. Layton, you've had this conversation <laughs> a thousand times. <laughs> yeah, and it really does depend on the Calvinist, because as I say thousands of times, even though I'm accused of misrepresenting Calvinism, Calvinism is not a monolithic group, and there are different kinds of Calvinists. Um, so if I'm talking to Greg Kokel, for example, who believes in libertarian free will, I'm going to approach that discussion much differently than I'm talking to James White, uh, who doesn't believe in libertarian free will and who's more of a compatibilist type. So there's different kinds of Calvinists. So it's really hard to give you kind of a one size fits all um, you know, for me, I usually start with the presupposition of the T um, when 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 the concept and idea that we're born unable to respond positively to the gospel is just assumed. Um, I always push on that point and just say, you know, where does the Bible teach that we can't respond positively to the gospel? Um, because I don't find it anywhere taught in the Bible. Now, there are some verses, of course, that Calvinists will often proof text or go to. But when you look at the context of them, they're not even talking about what the Calvinists seems to think they're talking about. There's there's no Bible verse, as far as I can tell, that because of the fall, we were all born unable to respond to God's remedy due to that fall. Um, it, there's just It's just not there. It's that this is theological baggage that's been added to the scriptures, that even for whatever reason, even some Arminian-type groups have adopted this concept and idea that we're all just born uh, God-haters that are just going to always hate God, no matter what we're burned guilty for what Adam did. And we're all, you know, destined to hell because of Adam's sin. And we can't respond positively to the gospel unless we were picked before we were born and, and unilaterally changed into different people, you know, uh, our, our very nature changed. Where is this in the Bible? Because that, that, those concepts, as far as I can tell, aren't taught in scripture. Um, the, the, the way in which your Calvinist pastor is probably going to approach you He's coming to Romans 9 or Ephesians 1 
maybe John 6, um, maybe Acts 13, 48 or something like that and, and try to proof text you into Calvinism by showing you verses that on the surface may look like they're supporting the idea that God predestined certain people to become believers. But um, that's why I produced the program, Sociology 101, is that we go through those proof texts to demonstrate how the context don't support the Calvinistic conclusions. Yeah, um, I just wanted to point out that Manny has been very active in the chat and and I and said and I asked him, are you saying that we're not elect because of our position on the freedom of the will? And he says, no, you're not elect by your own confessions. Uh, then Manny, this may not be the channel for you. Yeah, I've well, got absolutely his first time here. I've got absolutely no time for this sort of nonsense. One thing is true that we both agree about the other one that he needs to get right with God. So anyway. Yeah, maybe he's just one of those trolls who, 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 okay. who gives, who, who I'm, he's why a lot of people have such an adverse reaction to Calvinists yeah. and not just Calvinism. I'm sorry to the other Calvinists present that, 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 that look is being pushed here. Yeah. All right. Um, thank you, Tim, the ancient. I find the implications of Calvinism gross and offensive to me. And there are Calvinists who see those implications as bugs, not features. The, the brutality is the draw. That's where my disdain comes from. So we have someone here who is openly saying, but he wouldn't say that they're unbelievers like Manny said, but he does say he disdains this. Um, and it's, you know, it's like, um, think about, whew, I don't want to do that. People will get upset about the comparison. I'll just say this, that the reason that people disdain this, I think, is because uh, it could be because of the way people act and all that sort of thing. I don't think so. I think the primary reason that people on our side, some of them may disdain this is because what it because of the implications that it seems to make about God. It seems to make this implication that God is in some way the uh, source of what come to be evil things in the world. That's yeah, that's that's why. So, yeah, thank you for the super chat. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I don't have the same level of disdain for Calvinism. I see. Hey, that. I'm the other Manny, and I enjoy your show. I mean, Thanks, I, I'm just like, yeah, it's uh, whatever. It's interesting, you know. Um, I see how people have gotten there. I think they've gotten there through the wrong set of exegetical tools. But I don't have that kind of adverse reaction. But I do get why a lot of people do uh, have that adverse reaction to. You mean God wants most people in hell and has decided to pass over you know he's not even as good as jesus told his followers to be with respect to the good spirit you know i mean it's like god expects more from us than he expects from himself kind of thing mm-hmm. uh i get that i understand divine double standard all of that stuff i but i get why other people have such an adverse reaction to it um but for me it's my adverse reaction is not about calvinism so much as it is Calvinists like Manny or these Twitter trolls that follow me around who still think it's like 2012. But uh, as far as like Calvinism, they have nowhere to go now. I mean, because they they can only blow wind outward and they're, they're going to start blowing wind towards each other now because they just that's where I call that's why I use the language of implosion, because Calvinism as a cultural force in evangelicalism is imploding and if you are a spectator for that kind of thing there are you should follow it on twitter or x or whatever it's called because uh, this i know i know the philosophers are going to say correlation is not causation but but Leighton, see if you agree with me uh, on this uh, my thesis is trump destroyed internet or, or evangelical tra- calvinism donald trump did and let me explain why 
the Clayton's candidacy. doing an impression of Trump's mugshot. Yeah, right <laughs> it's a pretty good one. My my, my thesis is the, the, the candidacy and presidency of Donald Trump destroyed evangelical Calvinism because whether you whatever you think of Trump, I don't care. The culture around Trump brought out a whole lot of social issues in the culture that all of these prominent evangelical leaders, most of whom were Calvinists, they were all on the same boards of Together for the Gospel, Gospel Coalition, all of this. They started to have to pick different sides. You had the Russell Moore, Mark Deaver, more, you know, social justice side of things. You had the Nashville Statement side of things. You had like, a, I guess, no, the, the Dallas and the Nashville. A bunch of statements with named after Southern cities about we don't like all of this social justice stuff. You got the Votie Bauckham's on the other side of it. And when that, I mean, when people started getting kicked off each other's uh, <clears throat> Ligonier ministries, Together for the Gospel, Gospel Coalition, which nobody reads anymore, uh, I, seriously, it all coalesced around these issues that were brought out during Trump's presidency, whether it's the BLM stuff that you had mentioned or, you know. Did you get this from somebody whose name is Q online somewhere? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, the the what, what was the guy? Uh, what was the old president, that the hipster, uh, hipvenist president of the SBC? Uh, was it Greer? Greer and pronoun hospitality and all of this stuff. I think you're doing him some favors calling him a hipster, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's, I mean, he's older than I am, yeah. but, and I'm old. I'm really When is old. this going to be done? Cause I want to pray for somebody. Yeah. Okay. But, but <laughs> I, my thesis is when all of those issues came out and they kept taking sides that started this implosion on, on the Calvinist side, as far as their big togetherness around the tulip, became a bunch of different factions where Tom Askell and David Platt were on opposite sides of, uh, of each other fighting within the SBC and yet the Russell Moore types and all of that. Did, is that pretty much, I mean, do you think that thesis is fair from your observations? Yeah. I mean, I, Trump did bring to a head a lot of issues that the church is having to grapple with, I think, because of just his bombastic approach to everything. Um, and yeah, Trump changed the title, uh, entire political landscape. And of course, that's always anything that changes the entire political landscape is going to affect Christian culture and church culture. Um, you know, and I'm no fan of, of Trump because of more of just his personality and his you know moral you know, stances on views and things like that. The fact that he was able to appoint, you know, very conservative judges, I'm very appreciative for, and I'm glad for that. But the, his his bombastic approach to things, I think, brings so much um, controversy where controversy is not really needed. And a lot of people like that. I mean, people don't have to guess where he stands about things. He just says it. Um, and so that's that's kind of why Trump, I think, has become so popular is that he's so anti-political correctness that that it really attracts a lot of people because they're so tired of the political correctness. Um, but that the fact that he introduced or brought into the mainstream so many of these issues um, and all these other things that just happened within the culture of the world, I think, just the development. Yeah, um, during those how four the church years responds the, to that. Yeah. yeah. People hey, had to respond quick. to that. And oh, so sorry, you know, Calvinist, uh, the Calvinistic debate that was so big prior to Trump, you know, kind of drowned it out by all of this other stuff, the Black Lives Matter movement, the woke 
issues that came as a result of a lot of those things that happened in the political world. Um, yeah. And so the, the, the Calvinism argument among Southern Baptists was, you know, drowned it out pretty quickly. Yeah. Now you've got, you've got uh, Ronnie Rogers, who's been on your show. He's written a lot of books against Calvinism and Tom Askell lining up as, you know, on the same side of the more conservative Baptist wing of the SBC versus the influence that Russell Moore and, and Mark Deaver and all of them have had and David Platt and all that. And it's it's been interesting to watch that when they say, well, we can all rally around this. And then all of a sudden what divides them is much stronger than what united them around soteriology because they are after each other. They do not. I mean, they, they don't even consider Russell Moore, who is a Calvinist, by the way. They don't even consider him a Christian at this point. Who? Russell Moore. A lot of these Calvinists don't. And okay, then, wait, wait. You're where we yeah. want to get to. So pause right there. And I wanted to say, I had this up a minute ago. Here's a Trinity student. Uh, by the way, you can be a student at Trinity at trinitysem.edu, trinitysem.edu, and it's all online. And Ryan says, I'm about to head to a local, uh, what is it, Masjad, Masid, Masid, Masid. Masid, I don't know how to say that Islamic word, to talk with my Muslim friends. Prayers are appreciated. May they be brought to faith in the Lord Jesus. So what we're going to do is right now, whether you're a Calvinist or not a Calvinist, we're going to pray. And if you're an atheist, just uh, sit there and consider whether Christianity is true for a second. All right. <laughs> so let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Ryan. I thank you that you've given him an opportunity to do evangelistic apologetics in a real life scenario. I pray that you would uh, work through him. I pray that you would um, give him the words to say smoothly and easily and let them come. Lord, I pray that um, that you would prepare the heart of this person, open their heart, soften their heart. I pray that circumstances would be right, that the persuasion would be there. And I pray that he responds to the Holy Spirit as the gospel is preached, he being the person or persons that are going to be evangelized. We thank you in advance because we know your word will not return void. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, let's get on to another question here. Uh, so, uh, Leighton, uh, let's see. Le uh, Nathan, and by the way, uh, right here is, look here. This is Nathan. Where did he go? There, there's Nathan and me. Uh, you can't really see us that well because the picture. But there's me and Nathan, uh, Nathan at the conference. Nathan, <laughs> Nathan. <laughs> Anyway, he says, Leighton, how do most Calvinists you meet explain the first instance of evil, whether Satan or man? Where did that first desire to sin come from? Can you try to steal man such a position? Hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I, I don't usually bring this this particular topic up when I first meet a Calvinist, so I wouldn't be able to talk about that. But I, I can talk about a broadcast I did several years ago where um, J uh, uh, J John Piper actually addresses that very question on his Ask John podcast. They ask him, where did that first sin come from? What, why did Satan fall? And uh, I play that broadcast, and that would be an interesting one to listen to because I don't know how to better steel man your opponent than let the leading one of the leading Calvinistic uh, voices out there speak for himself. And it's interesting the way he talks about it because he, he speculates. He says he doesn't know what why Satan would have sinned the first time, or just like he doesn't really know why Adam and Eve would have chosen to sin the very first time. That's a mystery that he appeals to. Um, and he says, you know, maybe it's something, and I'm, I'm trying to paraphrase what I remember from what Piper's answer was. Maybe it's something as of God separating himself or he distanced himself. Or he, I think he uses the, the term cloaked himself from Lucifer so that Lucifer 
would, um, you know, go his own way or, or something of that nature. Um, in other words, separate himself from them, which is what called autonomy. We're, 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 it's funny how Calvinists will rail on us about, oh, you believe in the autonomy of the local, you know, the local, the, the, the autonomy of the center. And exactly, yes, when a person sins, they're acting autonomously. They're not acting in accordance with what the God has decreed or caused them to do. They are acting autonomously. And I thought it was interesting that Piper actually uses the speculation of God separating himself from, uh, from Satan and from Adam and Eve, uh, leaving them to their own devices as, as separation is autonomy. You're leaving them to their autonomous free will. And so this is the whole pushback that I have with Calvinists is because a lot of times Calvinists will rail on us because we appeal to the mystery of human free will, but then they just kick the can down the road and they appeal to the mystery of the first decision of sin as what libertarian free will, as a, a choice of an autonomous creature um, acting separately from his maker. Yeah, and R.C. Sproul answered the question very similarly. He says, I don't know, and I've never met anyone who does. As yeah. far as why did the first, why did Adam sin? Why was it the first sin? That's what Arsis Bull said. Kevin C., thank you for that super chat, says, even though I find the Calvinistic view of God's character abhorrent, they are absolutely my brothers and sisters in Christ. Good day and God bless. Thank you for that. And similarly, Derek Beeler says, for Leighton, we argue against Calvinism a lot, but you and I both love our Calvinist brothers and consider them allies for the Great Commission. Amen. 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 All right. Uh, let's listen. We we got talk about the woke thing for a minute, Jonathan. Uh, well, it's not just it's not just that. It's it's moved on. That's still going on with the Calvinists. Um, wait, let me get this real quick. Yeah. Was Jesus a Calvinist? No. No. Nope. Go on. Uh, but now, I mean, you've got even like within the old Venice, the old school Calvinists. The old Venice. You've got you've got Bridget, like the Owen do. Strand beefing with the christian nationalists like um was that stephen wolf guy so you've got like the oldvenists are now dividing amongst themselves over over christian nationalism like some like people think that we were mean to christian nationalists a couple weeks ago i mean these g3 calvinists are are going after them now and so even within like the right wing the conservative calvinists now they're splitting and arguing all over twitter about um, the Christian nationalism issue. And so uh, it, it's weird to find myself kind of in agreement with Owen Strand, who I agree with uh, on almost nothing except for the importance of physical fitness. Um, but but uh, I find myself on his, in his corner on, on um, the, the, the Christian nationalism thing too. But I, I think a lot of, uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention, Al Mohler and them, uh, were speaking out against a resolution that was helped somewhat crafted by some of his professors at the time on critical race theory. I think it was called resolution nine or something. And that was a big stink. And a lot of people were blaming Al Mohler because he had originally platformed a lot of these uh, Calvinists at his seminary. And it was interesting because I saw on Twitter, like if you were to say, what is the most woke SBC seminary? It'd have to be Southeastern, I think. And yet I saw on Twitter now, Mark, Deaver was begging people to show up to this thing to sign up or they were going to have to cancel a nine marks event. I mean, imagine a nine marks event not selling out in the first week, five years ago, six years ago, you know, and that they can't even attract a crowd at Southeastern of all places. So there's been just a lot of, a lot of the po political stuff, whether it's the, 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 uh, 
the more social justice or woke uh, stuff or even, you know, the what people would see compromising on egalitarianism or they would see compromising on the LGBTQ stuff with this uh, Greer's pronoun hospitality business and um, now Christian nationalism. It's like Calvinism has been splintered into this, what was once this, we're together for the gospel is now shattered all over the internet uh, fighting. That's just been my perception of things. Yeah, and I don't have a lot of opinions with the nationalism. I don't just because I haven't studied a lot about the different views. Even the woke stuff confuses me on some level. But there's a part of me that thinks, you know, having been friends with, you know, people like Ronnie Rogers, who I know is a part of the the CBN, uh, which is the Conservative Baptist Network, who's really you know standing against the whole kind of woke crowd. Um, and and they have Calvinists in that group as well as non-Calvinists like Ronnie. And uh, Ronnie seems like a very reasonable, level-minded, level-headed kind of Christian that I could get along with just fine. And I, I love him, and seems like a good guy. Uh, every time I've talked to him, he seems real reasonable. But you know, I, I don't. I've never met Russell Moore, for example. I'm just throwing out somebody that I know that there are often times behind him in line after. for coffee once, and we talked about the weather <laughs> for a half second. He seemed nice enough. Yeah, or somebody like him. I don't know if he's the perfect example, but someone who's been accused, maybe a David Platt or someone like that, who's been accused of. I know Chandler has been accused of being woke, and I do know Chandler. Why? Why? So, why wait a minute. Why has David Platt been accused of being woke? He likes black well, people. I like black. Well, <laughs> what the heck is that about? I, no, no, seriously. For You're some saying of these, it's unfair. For some, yes. Okay. For some of these things. Okay, so there's a spectrum of this. Like, <laughs> you, you broke. Mean, well, like, how do you do it, Braxton? How do you do it? How, how do you? How do you? How do you keep a straight face with this guy around? Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's, it, no, it's, it's just one of those things. No, seriously. What, what, this is the point I was going to make. I was saying if you had a Ronnie Rogers and a, a David Platt or a Russell Moore or somebody sitting in the same room together and you were just talking on this, I would imagine that for the most part, there may be some differences, but for the most part, they would be pretty reasonable with each other and having discussions over stuff. But what happens in our you know, soundbite world of online internet combatants, you know, combatants and trolls, you, you get people who do like they do to me sometimes in the whole Calvinism thing. They'll take little snippets of something somebody says mm-hmm. and someone like a David Platt or a Russell Moore, some, somebody will say something that's appeasing towards this particular liberal group over there in some way. Maybe maybe trying to offer an olive branch, so to speak, to say, you know, we do need to consider this about what they're saying. We do need to think about what these people are, are bringing to- towards the church and the accusations they're bringing. Whereas this group over here, as they see any form of appeasement whatsoever, even just the slightest olive branch, as, oh, now you're woke. And really, the person that was saying that doesn't believe that at all. What they're trying to do is make a, a bigger point about, uh, you know, offering the olive branch to say, okay, here's, here's a valid a- aspect of what they're saying, but I may disagree with some of these other aspects. And so that I, I think that's the important part here is that usually most of these kinds of online disagreements, if you had a face-to-face meeting with these people in the r- same room, most of it would be ironed out in a couple of minutes, I would think, because most of them are reasonable, level-headed kind Christian brothers and sisters who would probably get along if they were just talking to each other in person versus the sound bites on the internet. I don't know, man. 
people, I like I said, ever since the last two SBC conventions, I think the way people talk to each other on Twitter now is how they're going to talk to in person, and it won't be long before people get punched in the face for it. Because yeah, uh, you're probably it, right. There's probably some some uh, elephant in the room type discussions yeah, that they used to have elephant in the rooms that would be pretty pretty bad. Now yeah. I want to give eighteen uh, percent say that you guys were never Calvinist. That's eighteen percent of the Trinity Radio audience. We'll take five percent off of that for people that were just joking. But that's still uh, <laughs> still that's still a lot of people. Uh, real quick, and it really uh, doesn't matter to me if they think that. Apologetics. Really Hey, Dr. Flowers, question. When we use the term, quote, Calvinist, we are usually talking about soteriological issues. But also, isn't there a ton of issues we'd agree upon, like 75% of the Westminster Confession? Well, yeah, maybe, maybe not so much on that. Yeah. It depends on your view of the sacraments with the Westminster Confession. Maybe the plagiarized. Baptist Confession. Yeah. The copycat yeah. version of it, where they changed the, ordinance, the sacraments to ordinances. <clears throat> Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot, I, I agree with, uh, you know, more with the Presbyterian than the, um, reformed Baptist. I'm Let's present Baptist. a new type yeah. of Calvinist, perhaps yeah. the Gavin Ortland Calvinist. Now, Gavin Ortland has been very, uh, important in the apologetics world, uh, you know, within Christianity in, having friendly, loving, but forceful discussions about Catholicism. And that's the context in which I'm familiar with Gavin. I don't know much about his Calvinism. Do you guys or want to comment on that? I like the guy, but I, I don't have much. He's to... team Jesus. I'm uh, yeah. on his team. Yeah. 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 He seems like a really great guy from what I, I met him at one of the, the, the conferences. Um, uh, I, I think I responded to one of his videos a long while back. Um, seems like a real level-headed guy, much like like what I said about Joe Thorne. Not that he's the same, you know, same views of Joe Thorne on everything, but seems like the kind of guy I would get along really well with. And seems like a, a level-headed, nice kind of a, a Calvinist, kind of a maybe a, a, a like I said, Kokel kind of a Calvinist. Greg Kokel kind of Calvinist is the way he kind of comes across to me. But um, I don't know enough about about him to to be able to say much. Uh yeah, now Aaron says pushing critical race theory in your church isn't a joke. It's unbiblical and is much more than just Platt likes black people. That's obviously not the issue. Is that what this is about? Did Platt support BLM? Is that well? I mean, Platt hung out with. I mean, this is one of those things. I don't. I don't. Th this is where it gets complicated. When we say woke, there's there's two ways. Woke has an original meaning of having a raised awareness about racial injustice and. If that's the definition we want to go by, the classical definition, then I'm woke and I'm happy to be. Uh, but but also woke has been um, used to describe everything from CRT to a bunch of white, lesbian, blue-haired professors who are talking about, like, you know, genderqueer and all of that stuff. So woke has become a term that has been used now. Uh, and that's not the right's fault, by the way. That's, you know, back to the, the lesbo, blue-haired uh college professors every they all try to outwoke each other with the most ridiculous progressive view now much of what's progressive has been called woke i don't know that david platt is pushing critical race theory or that he could even articulate it for that matter but we have a tendency that anytime anyone wants to talk about any sort of racial issue in america people on the right and i'm sorry you don't get much further to the right than me but people to my right 
want to say that's critical race theory when they have no idea what they're talking about because they've never read a single book or a single article written by a lawyer talking about critical race theory in a journal, much less the popular level, what is critical race theory book? And so, so calling everything when someone speaks out about racial injustice, oh, that's CRT. Half of me wants to say, well, I mean, even Kimberly Crenshaw opened that door when she said this is a fount from which all this other stuff has sprung and like, like uh, anti-racism and all that stuff. I think CRT is absolute epistemological trash. It's godless nonsense. It's the whitest thing ever. Uh, by the way, if you look at it, it's, uh, I mean, post-structuralism influence, liberalism influence, um, post-modern influence, uh, <laughs> feminist uh, hermeneutic, like all of that, Marxism, yeah, it's the whitest Euro trash nonsense ever repackaged into racial issues by a bunch of lawyers who probably would be no better than uh, a C average philosophy major undergrad, to be honest with you, when they write this stuff. It's garbage. Completely agree. But there's a tendency that if you speak out on racial injustice, they're going to say you believe in CRT and you believe in anti-racism and all of that nonsense as a way to shut down the conversation and i'm not going to play that game either and so i don't know that david platt could even define crt but i do know that some of his detractors will accuse him of being a critical race theorist just for mentioning uh some racial injustices here and there and i think that uh i'm gonna have to side with david platt if because i've never heard him assert anything crt if you read David Platt's book, uh, what was it? It's the one that's yellow. Radical. Somebody who, uh, what's that? It's called Rat. I think it's called Radical. No, not radical. radical. Not not Radical. There was one more recently, just from like three or four years ago. Uh, but it basically talked about all the. Oh, is uh, counterculture? I think is what it's called. Anyway, you read that and you try to tell me that David Platt is woke. That just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. No, well, Russell Moore. I agree with you. Russell Moore. Someone says we're not going to put the word on the on the screen. Yes, I, I'm not a Russell Moore fan. I think he's an absolute trash human being, along with Whoa. David French. I will put that mm. out there. I put that. Out, I say that every other day on Twitter. What? So I, I'm yeah, not a I fan of Russell Moore. David French. He has intrinsic like value. Things, yeah. He's not trash. <laughs> but uh, Christoph, uh, thanks let, again. Let, Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I, I, I mean, if we're going to get canceled, you know, it, it might as well just jump all the way in, right? Um, you know, as an old white guy, as, as I've become now, getting in my older years with the white hair and, and, the, and the, what I have learned kind of going through all of this, the, the BLM, woke, CRT, all the stuff going on, which I don't pay a lot of attention to, to be honest with you. I just, I, 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 I just kind of got away from the talking heads on it because of the, it, what it was doing to my soul. Um, but what I do know of it and what I've seen of it um, in, in, in my own walk with the Lord Thanks, and you know, trying to, trying to balance these differences and these views um, there's, there's, I think points being made by both sides, which is usually the case. There's usually some value from both perspectives and both sides that if people would be reasonable enough to kind of, to, to sit down at a table and talk through these things, they can probably find some value from both perspectives. Um, and I, I know the feeling a feeling like I'm automatically considered a racist because I'm a white guy. I, I hate that. And there, and that's one of the things that makes us white guys so angry is when you just assume 
that we're racist because we're white. Yeah, that's anti-racist um, nonsense. That's that white fragility nonsense. That's all. That's well, all. Well, on trash. that view, uh, yeah. I read white fragility, and on that view, we're all racist. Just, just. I mean, we're yeah. benefiting from uh, a system uh, that is um, intrinsically. Yeah, right. I mean, all that and, and, Ibram and, Kendi, white fragility, whatever, Robin D'Angelo, all, all that's absolute garbage. And you know, like, so I don't, I don't. That's why it's so dangerous. Uh, we had that 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 super chat. Um, it's so easy to throw woke around and I do it too, as much as anybody. And yet, and I, I think a lot of what goes under the banner of woke now is trash classical definition of woke. I, I agree with, I, I want to fight racial injustice wherever it is. I don't think it's under every nook and cranny, just like a, a Pentecostal thinks there's a demon in every broken transmission in your car. Uh, I'm not that kind of person. Um, but where it, where it exists, I want to fight it. Um, but so, so many people go overboard on in both directions with this, that it's, it's those of us well, who sit kind of. Well, that's what I was getting to is that, yeah. you know, the, the, I think the, the vitriol reaction that most of us white guys have towards, you know, these, all these things are called reformations, you know, how are we going to pay back the people who, um, who had to suffer in slavery the last years? How many times do we have to apologize for our past mistakes that we didn't even have anything to do with? It was our great, great grandparents or whatever else. And how, how many times are we going to keep bringing this up and how we're going to make, make this about, and th those kinds of reactions that we as white people tend to have to all of this stuff that keeps being brought up, that there's the, that the one side and I get it because I, I feel the same way and I felt the same way until I sit down and have a discussion with somebody from the other side of the aisle and hear them out not the the radical weirdos that are the trolls on the internet but the 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 one who has thought about these things seriously and have good rational arguments and when i sit down and i hear what they're saying about how their parents or their grandparents and the influence of their lives upon their lives and the problems that they have had to deal with because of the systemic issues and i hear them out and i go oh I've never even thought of that before as a white guy. That's never, that's never even crossed my mind before until I sat down with you and talk with that. Now me just saying that right now on your show, somebody can grab that as a soundbite and go, Oh, Layton's woke. Look what Layton said, because Layton said something nice about somebody who disagrees with him on the other side of the aisle and gets where he's yeah. coming from. That automatically makes you quote unquote woke. When it, what it really is, is saying at least I can see somebody else's perspective. And, and understand why they feel the way they feel and where they're coming from for the reason they're, they're arguing the view they're arguing for doesn't mean that I'm quote unquote woke in the negative sense. It means that I'm reasonable. It means that I'm willing to sit down and at least hear somebody out and understand, oh, now I get where you're coming from. Just like we do in the whole Calvinism, Arminianism, provisionism debate. Yeah. To be able to see somebody from their viewpoint and say, oh, as a Calvinist, I understand where you're coming from. I understand well, a lot of the, why you believe that. Yeah, a lot of uh, the non-Calvinists kind of stay out of the online fights about the, like the CRT and the and, and and all of that. But the Calvinists, they have no problem planting their flags on on these various issues of, uh, you know, the more uh, Republican or conservative. Which I like. I said I'm I'm as I'm pretty far right wing. I've made no secret about that ever. I'm a conservative guy. I'm not a Republican. Uh, they're trash too. Not as trash. I mean, the only thing worse than a Republican is a Democrat. And Democrat. You're not a Republican. No, I, I 
lean anarchist, but but I mean, like I think that the Democrat Party is absolutely. Did you feel like that the chat needed more fuel? Yeah. Is that what? Yeah. The 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 Democrat Party is the absolute worst political party Whoops. in 2023. If you could still bring your, if you call yourself a Christian and could still vote for a Democrat, you need to check your sanctification because, I mean, they're awful. But yeah, where do you go to the Republicans then? No, they're pretty awful too. I mean, we got a Senate <clears throat> Minority Leader that can barely hang on to a podium He's and not a hard freeze time. up. But He's anyway, uh, hey, so listen. enough about my political opinions. Become an anarchist. Uh, as far as Calvinists go, Have, is there still anything left to say? Well, so I want to say woke Christian woke Christian nationalism. I think uh, Nick brought that up. That that's something I came up with to make everyone mad. Because if you say you're a Christian nationalist, you're going to make woke people mad. If you say you're woke, you're going to make the Christian nationalists mad. So I, I decided to call myself a woke Christian nationalist. So, so we need with to have that, Leighton, do that. you have anything you want to say to kind of round all this <laughs> Nick, up Nick and tie it in a nice little bow? What has Labels, God determined you for you to say at the end of yeah. the show? Labels, whether you're talking about Calvinism, provisionism, can be abused. Pelagianism, you know, we've all talked about how these these labels are abused. The same thing happens with conservative, uh, liberal, progressive. The same things happen with the the Black Lives Matter, the CRT, the woke. All these labels become their own little uh, entity uh, based upon what your experience is and what your your label. Even using somebody mentioned the word systemic. Even if you use the word systemic uh, automatically, that puts you in that category because that category uses that terminology all the time of systemic racism and these kinds of things. But if you acknowledge that there are systemic issues and you acknowledge what people, because of those systemic issues have felt, then that automatically in some people's mind puts you into that category when that's not necessarily the category you believe or you're standing in. You're just acknowledging their position and why someone may believe the way they do and you're understanding them. Again, there's a big difference between agreeing with somebody. It's like what we've said before. You need to be able to say, I understand before you say, I disagree. Saying that I understand your position is not the same thing as saying I necessarily agree with your position or I think that we should be paying reformations, uh, rep you know, paying money to groups of people because of the quote unquote systemic issues. But it can, but I can still say I understand why somebody makes an argument for that. I understand why they feel that way. There's a big difference between those two views. And some people can't because they're not willing to think at, at a deeper level. They, they can't even acknowledge the difference between I understand and I agree. If you even say, I understand where you're coming from and you offer the olive branch of saying, I get where you're coming from. I, I, I understand why you believe that and still disagree with maybe what they think, what you think is the answer to whatever that problem may be. Just being able to help somebody to feel understood is seen as quote unquote, um, you know, coming over to the other side and, and, and you're giving them too much weight and you're, and you're, you know, you're, you're supporting their views and all these kinds of things. And really what you're trying to do is to make them feel heard, make them feel understood because that's what most people are looking for. They're looking to feel understood. They're looking to feel that they, they, they've been heard. And, and some people don't even want to give them that because giving them that was is somehow coming over to their, their side or supporting their, their, their views or their, um, you know, their positions. And that's where I think some of this comes down to where, where it gets really, really um, messy and very combative is when people aren't willing to at least have the table talk discussions 
and to say, I hear you, I understand where you're coming from. Um, and then, you know, begin to talk about what are the best actual practical solutions to these kinds yeah, of problems. Preach it. Speaking I mean, of uh, the, uh, Leighton, yeah. when you said just now, when you tried to say the words reparations, uh, were reparations. you struggling not to say reprobations? Because that's what it sounded it like. That's where it was going. That's exactly. That's exactly. Because I'm so used to talking theology. Reprobations. Rep, I don't talk politics. Rep, rep, that's exactly what was going through. Yeah. Right. What you so just like, said. Reprobates. What you just said. Um, I think our Calvinist friends on the Internet, they need to take your advice. Because we've seen Calvinism unite around Tula, be a big force in evangelicalism. And all of that's gone. All of that's gone. Uh, and th part of it's because of the, that, that cage stage attitude how they lash out at other differences. But I think part of it goes back to something Al Mohler once said. Before you tweet, pick up a phone. Because a lot of these Calvinists, I am not a schadenfreude guy, like I said. Your mileage may vary. I don't like to see this. Um, go back to arguing with Layton because, I mean, he needs the— more views. I mean, right. But wasn't it better, you know, when we were all fighting each other over Calvinism, than watching Calvinism destroy itself by all of these different factions, just sniping it. I don't think that's good for the kingdom to see that much division within one stream of Christianity in America. And like I said, Twitter is real life. These people are taking it off of Twitter. And so Calvinists, I want you to listen to what Dr. Flowers just said, go play it back and Adopt that attitude. Go sit down at tables and, and get it together because we need, you know, we need Calvinists to, you know, get back to the main thing, which is, you know, not destroy churches that aren't Calvinists, but build up new churches and, and impact the culture for Christ. And, and you know, Leighton, you're probably smart to stay out of politics. I would be smart if I did the same, which I'm not that smart as you. Um, but I don't, like right see, I don't like to see, I don't like to see, I don't like to see Calvinists destroying themselves, uh, on the internet. So maybe they need to take your advice and all get together at one of their get togethers and, and come back together for Calvinism, if not the gospel, cause you get the gospel wrong. But, um, yeah, the, the Calvinism is not in a good place right now. And, um, listen to three non-Calvinists talk about what's wrong with Calvinism. You need an outsider perspective because you're a mess and you can't see it. So I can make a joke about that. Yeah. But anyway, uh, and by the way, RN says, wow, this is almost a record yeah. for a Friday show. One and a half hours. Well, it's because we got Leighton on right. here. We, we could go also, for three it's because there's three of us. And as you add new theology geeks, you have to increase by 30 minutes. So, uh, but let's call it done. Cause I'm ready. <laughs> yeah. Well, I tried to wrap it up a minute ago, okay. uh, by asking Leighton, if he had any final thoughts, do you have any other final thoughts? <laughs> I could, you know, me, you know, I can just keep on rattling on and keep this going for another, you know, hour and a half if you want. But um, I think we said, I think we said what needs to be said. And and when people are reasonable people and hearing with a fair mindedness about themselves, um, usually that goes a long way to helping people, you know, not automatically assume the worst about the person they're listening to because you happen to disagree with them theologically. And that, that, that happens way too often where if, if, uh, you know, Tom Nettles, a Calvinist says something uh, that, that you disagree with, you know, the non-Calvinists are going to come down a lot harder on him than if a, a Billy Graham or a, you know, a, a, uh, Adrian Rogers would have said the exact same thing, you know, just because they happen to agree with you theologically, you tend to view people on the other side of the theological aisle 
um, with with more strict and uh, angry tone in their in their their words. And instead of I think being what we need to be is to be brothers and sisters and to kind of say, yeah, you know, he's he kind of like my weird uncle in Thanksgiving, you know, he means well, even though he's saying really goofy, dumb things, you know, sometimes <laughs> and kind of look it over and kind of look past it and kind of, you know, choose to, to get along even when you disagree with somebody. It doesn't mean, and I, I'm not trying to say you, you become namby pamby and you don't give your opinion or you don't hold to strong views. I think you can do that, but you can do so while still being respectful. David Allen just put out a tweet that I thought, was really good and retweeted it. And he says, I have an idea. How about we try to disagree without being disrespectful? You know, and it just something that simple, you know, I think can, can help us go a long way where you can disagree with people without totally shattering their personhood or, you know, trying to get them canceled as they, as I say, in these, these, these days, but you don't ever treat uh, it's me that discussion. way. Wade. Well, you well, know, you're, you're like my weird uncle at Thanksgiving. I mean, that's just the kind of way of, <laughs> He's somebody's weird uncle. Yeah. All right, <laughs> folks, this has been awesome. Layton, it's always such a, an honor to have you on. You're a very uh, prominent voice out there, and we uh, appreciate you and learn from you, and you've personally helped us in many ways, and we look forward to seeing you very soon in a couple of weeks in Texas. The great it's state of Texas. Yes. And it is great state. It's great. I am looking forward it's to great. Texas barbecue. It's great. And California Kevin, you have me confused with IP, who is the wishy-washy libertarian that Michael Dulles talks about. Libertarians Just, want to get elected to government. I don't think there should be one. That's the difference between and me do, and libertarians. If you do go to Texas, just know there is no basement to the Alamo. Let those who know understand. You guys know what that's about? I've been to the There's Alamo. A, do you know about the no basement in the Alamo thing, Layton? No. Does anybody know? We'll leave it to the people. A very well-known celebrity Google, died recently and named Paul Rubin, and it has something to do with a film he was once in. Oh, So go figure that out. Mm. And with that, we'll see you all next time on Trinity Radio.